It's Sunday, July 31, 2022, and welcome to the 24th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can download the show as audio in addition to the daily 5-Minute News podcast on iTunes or wherever you get yours. Joining me today is human rights lawyer, author of several books, including The Wrong Kind of Muslim, and founder and executive director of Common Purpose, an organization dedicated to electing more women and underrepresented candidates to office, Kasim Rashid. Welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining us here on The Weekend Show. Good to be seen. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Uh, there's lots to talk about. I, I want to kind of have a uh, a cultural conversation, if possible, you know, because the news is everywhere. There's so much noise from news. But I think it, it's it's interesting sometimes just to kind of stop all that and, and, and cut through and look at w- how people might be feeling about things, you know, have a, an, an emotional conversation. Sure. <laughs> it's not, yeah. not something that necessarily happens on, on television. Um, and obviously, we've got the um, uh, January 6th uh, uh, committee hearings, which just took their summer break, and there's a lot to look at with that. Uh, I also want to talk about China and this uh, new um, bill about uh, manufacturing chips in the in the US. Uh, but I first want to talk about um, demographics, really. This is something that's very interesting, because uh, you may have heard the US Justice Department's investigation into the uh, attack on the 6th of January and mm-hmm. Trump's uh, plan to overturn the election results. It's now been expanded to actually include Donald Trump himself, according to the Washington Post this week. Um, and there's there's been some questions about, you know, pursuing justice for the attack, but also not reinforcing um, policing that criminalizes Muslims and black and brown people, because the threat actually is white supremacy. And uh, if you look at the demographics of those who attacked the Capitol on the 6th of January, they were predominantly white. And uh, in fact, if you look at Donald Trump's following, it's predominantly white, apart from half a dozen black people that they always sit behind him. Right. And there's often questions as to how legitimate their their views are. So do you think it's fair to say that homegrown terrorism, which is actually the biggest threat, you know, it was the threat to democracy on the on January 6th, but we're seeing it with mass shootings and, and, and you know, various kind of uh, gun crime in the US. It's not black and brown people that are shooting these guns. And it's certainly not Muslims. Look, there has been a massive failure when you look at American history, when it comes to accountability for white supremacist terrorism. Uh, Let's just be very clear about this. Uh, Two things can be true at once. You can be proud of being an American, and you can also acknowledge that our country was founded on the genocide of one people, Native Americans, and the enslavement of another, Africans. And uh, when you look at the build up to the Civil War, uh, a lot of folks forget that there were attempts through the legal process up to the Supreme Court to give humanity back to black people. And one of the most famous cases, uh, a Dred Scott case, where the majority opinion was written by a white supremacist Supreme Court chief justice named Justice Taney, uh, he said black people don't have the right to citizenship. They don't have the right to humanity because they are subhuman. And scholars now look at that and say that case in, I think, 1857 
was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back that ultimately led to a civil war to end this uh, you know, horrific atrocity of slavery. And, and post-slavery, in the Reconstruction era, we see, again, attempts were made, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and a lot of folks forget that the Civil Rights Act of 1965 was first tried to be passed in 1875, but the Supreme yeah. Court struck it down completely. And so because we've never really reconciled with this history of white supremacy, there was no reconciliation, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we saw in post-apartheid South Africa or post-Holocaust Germany. What we're seeing today is, in many respects, a continuation of that hatred for black and brown people. And that's why you're seeing, you know, why the FBI has been warning for 20 years now that white supremacy terrorism is a single greatest terror threat to the United States. And even if you include the horrific attacks of 9-11, since 1993, more than 90% of domestic terrorist attacks in the United States have been by white supremacists and right-wing extremists. And we cannot ignore that if we hope to move forward as a country built on actual justice and equal access for all people. The media is also to blame, uh, isn't it, Kasim? You know, there, there is this... I mean, you've talked about this in your TikTok videos, you know, the, the fact that when um, uh, white people are portrayed who, who have broken the law, they're portrayed in a kind of happy family photo, and yet they, they find a, a, a black person who's done an equivalent crime and they're portrayed visually as, you know, somebody who looks terrifying and scary and they've picked the worst photo they can find. I mean, it's subtle, isn't it? But it, it all plays into fear. And I, and I think that maybe fear is at the heart of this, you know, and this is why we're having an education to kind of open a conversation to educate yeah. ourselves, to kind of open our minds. Tell, tell me about the, the media bias in this on this subject. Well, look, I, I think there are some journalists who are doing phenomenal work, incredible work. They're objective. They are consistent. And if they make a mistake, they acknowledge, I was wrong. I should have been better at reporting. But what we've also seen, especially since the rise of Rupert Murdoch's uh, you know, propaganda, state TV, Fox News from 1996 and beyond, is that there has been this consistent attempt to push the envelope under the guise of subtlety and just asking questions. And that's been one of the common defenses that, well, I'm just asking, are white people in danger of being destroyed? I mean, it's such a silly question to ask, but by asking it, it suggests it pushes the Overton window over and makes people start to think that these suggestions are actual threats to, uh, to, to who they are. I mean, um, there's a very famous example after Hurricane Katrina way back in 2004, 2005, where uh, AP News, which is uh, by no means a right wing or left wing outlet, but even they capitulated to this, uh, you know, covert white supremacy where they showed a picture of a white family uh, going through floodwaters, having been decimated and describe them as a family uh, finds food trying to survive this attack. Uh, they showed a black family also getting food, going to floodwaters, and they portrayed it as these people are looting a store in this uh, horrific atrocity. And these are subtle things. And I think what folks need to understand is that white supremacy isn't somebody you know, tattooing a swastika to their forehead, necessarily. It's not somebody wearing a KKK hood or burning a cross on their lawn. It's much more subtle than that. And that's where it's actually even more dangerous because it allows us to be influenced by this misinformation while uh, dehumanizing black and brown people. And, and, and that translates to higher arrest and incarceration rates for black and brown people, longer sentences, lower rates of being released, 
and, and that has broader implications on voting rights that we can talk about. But what I ask folks to do in my TikTok videos and my tweets is to be very, very specific and look at the facts at hand and truly understand what is happening. Because if you don't, as Malcolm X once said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you, uh, you know, defending those who are doing the oppressing and condemning those who are being oppressed. Uh, Donald Trump initially tried to blame BLM and Antifa for the for the attack on the Capitol building, you know, trying this kind of propaganda suggesting that that's who it was. Mm -hmm. We've since found out it was actually the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers that kind of opened those floodgates to allow them in. And those are, uh, you know, white supremacist militia groups. Um, he also pushed this birtherism story, didn't he? You know, even before he became president, questioning Obama's um, uh, birthplace, yeah. uh, which, as we know, is Hawaii. And maybe he didn't know Hawaii was America. I mean, <laughs> who only knows what that guy was thinking? But I also found it very interesting that he liked to use Obama's middle name a lot. Yeah. Right. Which was Hussein. Yes. And he used that because he knew that Hussein had, uh, you know, it sounded like Saddam Hussein, who right. was a, who was a baddie. And, and it represented, you know, terrorists. And I, I have a theory, and maybe you can corroborate this or you might disagree, but I think the reason they use Antifa, you know, they created Antifa as a phrase because it sounds a bit like Al-Qaeda. It, 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 it's, it's, you know, anti-fascist is what it is, and yeah. hopefully I am anti-fascist and so are you, but yeah. it's if you say it quickly and say it enough, it sounds like some kind of Muslim, uh, you know, organization. And, and I'm convinced of this. I mean, and I'll be interested in your theory, but... This is systemic racism, isn't it? This is the, this kind sure. of inbuilt racism where people like Donald Trump, who grew up privileged and only around white people, and even, well, you know, obviously he, you know, there's that famous story of his, his father refusing to kind of rent those tenement buildings to, sure. to black people. And so there was, you know, racism very early on in his family. But for you, you grew up in Pakistan. I, I grew up in London. I actually brought to show you, I thought this is kind of interesting. This is a photograph from 1979 of my little preschool. And the reason I look at it and I have it on my shelf is because it's full of white, black and brown people and, and, and Asian people. It's like my childhood, 1979, I was four years of age. I, I was privileged to grow up amongst this kind of multicultural, multicolored, multi-faith, multi-race, multinational people. And that's, a, that's my privilege because Absolutely. it means that the, and people like you were my best friends. You know, I had a friend called Kasim and, you know, it's so I do try and have empathy for Americans growing up in small towns where it is just white people. And and so when you hear when they hear about this propaganda and the news, where as you describe, black and brown people are portrayed differently, I mean, what hope is there for them? You know, how do we reach those people? There's a great book written by Professor Jonathan Metzer called "Dying of Whiteness," and uh, this is a professor. He's white himself, and he goes to these rural towns. And in one famous interview, he speaks to a man who's dying of liver cancer. And uh, unlike uh, the UK, uh, in the United States, uh, healthcare isn't guaranteed, unfortunately. It's a for-profit industry. It's dystopian, as you can imagine. It's barbaric and backwards. But uh, you know, left-leaning politicians have made attempts to expand healthcare access. And one of them was to expand healthcare access to low-income communities. And here this person was 
in a red state, which, by the way, red states are overwhelmingly dependent on federal tax dollars for as much as they despise the federal government. They sure rely on them a lot. But all that state had to do was expand federal health care access and this person could get treatment for his liver cancer. But he said, I would rather die seeing himself as a martyr than allow health care access, because if he got it, then so would black and brown people. And then we're a socialist country and it's not worth living in anymore. So yeah. they have this myopia that has convinced them that they're in some type of holy war against black and brown people. And it undermines the very purpose of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so I think the solution ultimately has to be, and I talk about this through common purpose, through a lot of my advocacy, is we need to activate people. Keep in mind that in the 2020 election, despite record turnout, the single largest demographic of registered voters, 101 million people, didn't vote at all. They, they could have voted for President Anthony Davis and we could have President Anthony Davis right now. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suspect life would be a lot better if we did. But that's, I think, the solution that ultimately we're not going to be efficient with our limited time and resources trying to convince someone with liver cancer that it's better if you live, if they simply don't want to live. Uh, I have empathy for that person, but I also have more empathy for the people who are suffering from cancer and heart disease and need and want that treatment and are willing to do the work to make sure that they can have it accessible for all people. It's, it's almost as if we are witnessing people like it's it's like a kind of national suicide isn't it you know like uh, there's a lot written about how america is is collapsing you know the experiment has failed and i do believe that that this division not just political but also social it is part of the problem here because as you say it's it's a bit like turkey's voting for christmas well i i think that the patriot in me refuses to say that we're a failed experiment. Uh, the, 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 the American citizen in me says that we can continue to fight for that more perfect union built on justice, uh, built on you know, true equity for all people. Um, but to your point, though, uh, Anthony, it's no accident that America has the highest uh, maternal mortality rate in the developed world. We have the highest infant mortality rate in the developed world. We have the lowest life expectancy in the developed world. And this is all despite spending two to three to four times per capita more on healthcare. Uh, and the reason that math exists is because the money we're spending on healthcare isn't on actual healthcare, it's on executives and insurance companies and co-pays and premiums and all words that people outside of America probably don't understand. And I hope they never understand what they mean because you have healthcare guaranteed to you as a matter of human right. But, but I think that at the same time, we're seeing a powerful uh, change coming from younger folks. Uh, people across the board, under the age of 40, under the age of 30 especially, are recognizing we've been given a raw deal. Uh, we are the first generation that will be uh, less wealthy than our parents, that will have less rights than our parents, that will have less uh, access to basic clean air, food, and water than our parents. And it's that generation that has screwed things up, which is why, for me, it's exciting to see young people running for office at all levels of government. If I have a 22-year-old come up to me and say, hey, when, when should I run for office? And I said, the second the thought enters your mind. Because if the thought has entered your mind, it means you've recognized there's an injustice and you have found, in my view, the quickest way 
to make an impact. And if you run and you lose, so what? It's better to run and lose when you're 22 than when you're 42. Because guess what? If you run and lose at 22, you've got 20 more years of trying before you get to 42, and you can be a lot more successful as opposed to waiting until the time is right. The time is now, and that's where my hope really is for the future of this country. Young people rising up and saying enough is enough. We demand the accountability and justice that we were promised growing up. You you ran yourself, didn't you? And, and, I did. And you you won, although you were beaten out by a Republican yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, how how did people uh, kind of take to you as as a as a Muslim running for office? Did you feel? In fact, let me reverse this question. I first want to know what it was like for you coming here in was it 1987? Yeah. As a as a as a child, it was Ronald Reagan's America yeah. back then. Yeah. I mean, what's it like growing up as a, as a, a Pakistani Muslim in America, and then eventually running for office? Just give me a little uh, uh, example of that journey. You know, one of my favorite pictures of my father is from 1975, when he was a young man of 25, and he's on a ferry, and in the background is the Statue of Liberty. And it's just a powerful testament because when I ran for Congress, I was a Democratic nominee, and I compared that picture to my name on the ballot for U.S. Congress. And that itself was an exciting thing. And so for me, you know, we were fortunate growing up in that our parents really ingrained in us that you, this is your home. You are as American as anyone ever was. And you can do that while being uncompromising with your faith as a Muslim. There's no conflict between the two. And so my siblings and I, uh, one thing we did not lack growing up was confidence and uh, confident in our, our faith, in our, in our citizenship, in our ability to belong and to be part of this fabric. Now, that being said, definitely had bullies, definitely got suspended for fighting. Uh, I would call it defending myself, but absolutely was suspended for fighting and, and, and got you know <laughs> into the, the bare knuckle boxing and, and all the stuff that comes with it. And when I ran for office, two things happened. One, uh, there were death threats. And I think that's kind of part of something a lot of American Muslims experience. And so I don't want to make myself sound special. Uh, a lot of uh, underrepresented communities experience that. And so I definitely felt that, uh, put my family through that. But the other thing that was really interesting, and if you look at just, you're right, I did not win the general election. But the sheer fact that a brown Muslim immigrant can come into this country, we ended up with a 25% higher turnout than any Democrat in the history of the district that I ran in. And so to see that kind of a jump, it doesn't happen by accident. So the, the point that I'm trying to make is that while the death threats were there, there was far more positivity. There was far more support, compassion, and recognition from folks that this is where our country needs to be. And, and I was able to paint the narrative to say, look, I may not be African, but I'm Muslim. And 30% of the Africans enslaved and brought to the United States were Muslim who built the foundation of this country and did so without reparations, did so without, without any sense of recognition. And so when you look at American history, not only did African Muslims enslaved build this country, but Muslims of all stripes and backgrounds fought for this country in every single war this country has been in, including the Revolutionary War, through the Civil War and through contemporary times. So for anyone to have the audacity to claim that I'm otherized or I'm not part of this fabric, tells me that not only are they ignorant to the history of this country, but they're ignorant to what, what this country is supposed to be, a, a more perfect union built on true justice for all. And so that was my experience running. Uh, I'm sure at some point in the future I'll run again. But to those listening and watching this, 
Um, don't let anything about your identity prevent you from taking your rightful place, being uh, part of the fabric of this country. That's why this country was created, and that's why we need to keep pushing forward. It's so interesting how preju prejudice like presents itself. I, I, I remember when I first moved to the U.S., and I, I tried to get a job on the radio here, and the boss of the biggest radio network in, in America said to me, well, you're British, we can't put you on. Like, no, Americans aren't going to want to listen to a British guy talking about, you know, telling them what's right and wrong with their country. <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> that. I was like, it's not a fair example, but it, it just goes to show that there is still this kind of desire. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a white person. You know, yeah. like, there is still this desire to homogenize right. American culture in some way. And, and, that is my fear because it's still going on. And I'm very interested uh, to hear from you, like at what point things started to change? Because, you know, I often use 9-11 as an example where this kind of fear set in. And, and of course, with, uh, you know, George W. Bush kind of creating this war on terror, which we'd never heard that phrase before, yeah. war on terror. And terror obviously being forming part of terrorism. Uh, then, of course, they convinced Americans that uh, they had to go looking in Iraq to, f to find people that were from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And eventually the bad guy was in Pakistan. I mean, that was just a mess, yeah. right? It was a mess. But the effect of that was that American Muslims suddenly were on the back foot. And, and there were, you know, white, uneducated Americans who felt that all Muslims were potential terrorists. And enough was not said out loud by the media or whoever to make the difference between extremists and, and, and you know, regular law-abiding citizens. Well, you, you mentioned this point earlier about uh, the former president bringing up uh, Barack Hussein Obama and the birtherism, bigotry, and racism. One of the things that the GOP has been extraordinarily good at are these catchphrases. And yeah. whether it was the war on crime that led to mass incarceration and the explosion of the prison industrial complex, whether it was the war on drugs that locked up black and brown people at rates of six to nine times more than white people and sentenced them to longer prison terms that decimated neighborhoods, whether it was this war on terror that launched you know, two unjust wars, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians, tens of thousands of soldiers across the country uh, and across the world costing $6 trillion while we didn't have basic health care access or, uh, you know, we're struggling with poverty and, you know, all these things, you know, and, and then, you know, the, the birtherism, right? The, the build that wall, the creeping Sharia. I mean, all these, you know, catchphrases are designed to create this, this sense of fear, the sense of otherizing. And unfortunately, they're effective. And, and so my view, one of the reasons why, to answer your question, kind of where did it shift for me? It was that moment when I began to realize that unless I'm writing my own narrative, uh, someone else is going to write it for me and it's not going to be to my liking. And for me, it actually wasn't 9-11. Uh, that obviously made it even more clear that we need to do a more effective job of mentioning and explaining who we are and defining ourselves. But for me, I think my first real experience of that that was that's is still seared in my memory. There are other minor experiences, but this is the first major one. Was when I was about 16 years old in 1998, driving to work, pulled over by a law enforcement officer, told to get out of the car in the freezing cold. 
and another officer pulled up and pointed his gun right at my head. Without telling me why, no reason, and after about half an hour letting me go and claiming that I matched the description of a bank robber the night before, which is, again, absurd. That was something that when I talked to my friends about, most of, of whom were white because I lived in a predominantly white area at the time, was something that they had never experienced before. Uh, and then seeing that experience play out over and over again, the, the running joke among my friends at the time after 9-11 especially was that if you want to get pulled over, just get in a car with Gossim because over the next two years after 9-11, we started counting. I was pulled over over 70 times without getting a ticket. It was just racial profiling. And so for me, that really was a trigger moment when I realized I need to build a platform. I need to be able to have my voice heard, not for some egotistical reason, but because if I don't make clear who I am and what I stand for, um, we're going to create a society of people whose only introduction to Islam is going to be, or what they think is Islam, is this horrific atrocity of the Twin Towers collapse and killing 3,000 innocent civilians. And rather than sitting on the sidelines, I need to be at the forefront of, of demonstrating not only is that not Islam, but let me show you what true humanity and compassion actually is. And I think for what it's worth, it's been a tumultuous journey, but it's also allowed me to demonstrate by example what that means. And I think the fact that I have a platform and a modest following on social media with books and all that good stuff is a reflection that people are genuinely interested in learning about this stuff. They genuinely want to know. They have a genuine desire to empathize and build bridges and to better understand. We just need to be there to meet them where they are and bring them along on that journey. The, the debate is still raging on about that uh, Muslim center that was near Ground Zero. Do you yeah, remember that story? The Ground Zero mosque, where of course I do, yeah. The, the, the media called it a mosque, and it was never a mosque. Yeah. It was a kind of educational center, right? Yeah. And, a, and, and, you know, I, I occasionally see videos on social media of people still getting angry about this. I mean, how, how is it possible that even everything that you've, we've been through, you know, as a, as a, a global community, because of course, you know, everybody remembers where they were at 9-11. I was in a converted watermill in Portugal. I mean, it's like listening on a little transistor radio. I didn't even have television, you know, and I, I, I thought it was World War Three. That was the way it was being presented by the BBC World Service at the time. You know, we all, and, and I also lost a, a, a distant cousin in, in that, you know, his, his name is on the, on the memorial, and I only found that out through, through genealogy. But I, I recognize that we, as a, as a world community, are still fighting this, this misinformation and this, um, this fear and this anger that exists. And it's been galvanized recently, you know, here in the U.S. with the Supreme Court, which is an ex increasingly extreme right-wing, white nationalist Christian view of the world imposing a religious view on non-religious people you know so how, how do we move on when people are still kind of getting upset about a, a muslim center being built in the shadow of of ground zero well I, I think part of it starts by recognizing that there are certain people you're not going to convince and that's not where your focus should be i have this phrase that i call collateral education um, if I'm talking to you about why blue jackets are better than black jackets, and I know that you're married to black jackets and you're not going to change your mind, then my advocacy to you may fall on deaf ears to you. But I have to be cognizant that there are millions of people watching 
that I can convince and help them understand through my example, through my behavior, through compassion, why blue jackets are better. Now, that's obviously a metaphor for something much broader and wider. I'll give you a perfectly good example. A couple of years ago when I was running for Congress, I received this really nasty Islamophobic threat from somebody. Uh, I was about to just block and move on until I realized that this person had a GoFundMe for about $25,000 in medical debt. So rather than block or respond in kind, I donated a small amount of money to his GoFundMe. And I tweeted out that, hey, this person sent me something really bigoted. Uh, it, it was hurtful, but at the same time, I believe healthcare is a human right and nobody should go into medical debt. So if you can spare a few bucks, throw some money his way. Well, it went viral. And in a matter of, I think, a day or 24 hours, 12 hours, his entire debt was paid off completely. Uh, he sent me an apologetic email. We met up. The friendship lasted for about three weeks until the Islamophobic rhetoric began again. He kind of you know, reversed and devolved back into this right-wing extremist and started sending me death threats again. Now, the question is, should I have engaged with him at all, given that he obviously didn't learn a single thing? And my answer to that is still 100% yes for two reasons. One reason, my principle that healthcare is a human right is not something that's discriminatory. I can't say it's a human right for people that I agree with or people who like me. It's all or none. And in that case, it was the right thing to do. And the second thing is that even though he reversed course and became the bigot that he was initially, the literally thousands of messages that I got from people saying, I didn't know that Islam requires you to uphold justice and compassion in all affairs, even when you're being discriminated against. I have a better understanding of Islam now. I can respond to my racist uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, and I can <laughs> recognize my own prejudices. So for me, that was a massive victory. So I, I don't think we should get ourselves uh, tied up or feel hopeless because people are still bigoted about stuff that happened a long time ago that was inconsequential, like the Ground Zero Mosque, so to speak. I think mm -hmm. what we should do is recognize here's an opportunity for us to lead by example, uphold justice, even in the face of injustice, and show people, appeal to their better angels and say, hey, we can be better and stronger if we work together. We don't have to agree on everything, but we have to see the humanity in one another. And if we can build that as the baseline, solve things like hunger and poverty and, and lack of education and lack of health care, then we can debate religion and politics. But let's just work together on the basic humanity of one another and solve these basic needs that every person has because they are an, a human being and they have that innate right. You took a leaf out of Michelle Obama's book. They go low, we go high, right? Well, I think this is a little bit different, though. I, I, I mean, I, I see where she's coming from that. I, I, I think that it's not a matter of going high when they go low. It's a matter of not letting their behavior impact your commitment to justice, right? So if, if they go low or high or, or whatever, it's, it's almost like I'm going to ignore whatever obstructive means you are trying to throw at me, and I'm not going to be reactive to that either. I'm going to have this consistent standard of justice that you can do. You can go low, you can go high, you can do whatever you got to do. I'm not doing this for you as the individual. I'm doing this for society at large. One of the most common questions I get from folks is how do you maintain your optimism in the face of all this trash that's happening in the world? And my view is, it's that trash that I'm trying to solve. It's that, you know, my, my focus is, my, my thought process is one in nine children in America are going to bed hungry right now. One in nine in the wealthiest country in the world. 
why am I going to worry about responding to some troll or getting upset about some troll on Twitter who calls me a sand N-word when I know that there's a 12% chance or whatever the math is that that person's kid is going hungry? How do I solve that issue? And I think when you're focused on that kind of stuff, the going low, going high, it's irrelevant. It's, it's not relevant to your conversation because what you're trying to solve is so much more important than that individual tiny bigot out there who wants to get off on you reacting to their bigotry. Okay. Well, I'm thrilled to announce that this podcast is now sponsored by BetterHelp. Well, life is full of twists and turns, as we know, and it's important to show up for yourself through it all. BetterHelp is an online therapy service, and it will assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. Now, I'm a huge advocate for therapy, psychotherapy, talking therapy, and sometimes friends and family, you know, they've heard it all before, but they're not really the right people to have a, an unbiased ear. And that's why I recommend that talking to somebody who is trained and knows what they're doing can actually make a huge difference in your life. Now, it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online, available to people worldwide. It's a really great way to invest in yourself. And uh, there's therapists in every state, all 50 states here in the US. Well, the good news is BetterHelp have a special offer for you as a viewer or listener to the weekend show, you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash weekend show. That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash weekend show. China's Commerce Ministry uh, said on Friday that uh, Major New Chips Act, the uh, act that was passed by the U.S. Congress this week, will distort the global semiconductor supply chain and disrupt international trade. Uh, you know, they passed this legislation on Thursday to subsidize the domestic semiconductor industry as it competes with Chinese and other foreign manufacturers. Um, Kasim, do you think that this would have happened if... if Donald Trump wouldn't have started that whole anti-China rhetoric and, you know, this whole America first thing. And, you know, sh you know, yes, of course, China is a, is an enemy. We, we, we call out their human rights atrocities and, you know, they're obviously a nuclear power. And so, you know, there's lots of reasons not to get on with China. I get that. But in terms of industry and globalization. You know, we are past the point of no return as far as I'm concerned, because even if you build a car in America, you know, half of those parts are going to be Chinese made. And I, I, I recognize that we are so embedded now in, in what China does so well, you know, their ability to manufacture things, um, you know, very specific things very, very quickly. Um, they don't pay their workforce enough. We know that. We've heard all those stories about, you know, Foxconn and Apple and Samsung and, uh, you know, work workers, um, you know, the environment that workers are, are, are put through. But this is more about, you know, trying to bring back manufacturing, in this case, semiconductors, which China has the monopoly on. Is, is this a good idea from a, from a, industrial perspective and an enterprise perspective? Or is this also about, you know, just kind of getting back to what Trump was saying that, you know, China is the enemy and they've stolen all of our great ideas and we want to bring all that stuff home? 
Well, I think two things can be true at once. Uh, I think, one, we can condemn the anti-Chinese bigotry that the former president engaged in, particularly uh, when it came to the COVID-19 virus and pandemic, and just the dehumanization of Chinese as a people. Uh, There's no excuse for that, and we need to condemn that categorically. I think the other thing that can also be true is it's rich for the Chinese government to claim that this act in the United States Congress is going to disrupt the global semiconductor industry. When you look at how China became the top dog in this, it was by subsidizing semiconductors in China as well. That's how they become the top dog in EV vehicle production, by subsidizing that production uh, on the local scale as well. And so this is simply that same playbook and that same strategy. One of, I think, the big wins of the Biden administration, and don't get me wrong, I've been plenty critical of the Biden administration as well, but giving credit where due, one of the uh, transformative changes of this infrastructure bill that was finally passed under this administration was the requirement that more than 50% of an automobile's consequential parts uh, by, by volume and by cost have to be made in the United States as well. And so it's starting that transition back. Now, with this semiconductor, I think there's uh, plenty of criticism to go around as well, that if we're subsidizing, what, $60 billion on this, why can't we provide free, free college? Why can't we provide health care? Why can't we do all these other things that we also need as well? And, and my argument to that would be that we should do both. We shouldn't just do one. We should do both. Because at the end of the day, I think it's important that from an industrial standpoint, the United States recognizes that we have the natural resources, we have the technology, we have the workforce, and we have the supply and demand needs here to be able to produce those chips in the United States. And if this can be a jumpstart to make that happen in a long-term scale, I think it's an absolutely a good idea. I, I hesitate to say that that's the result of the former president being bigoted towards China. I think any economist would tell you that for a country to be sustainable long-term in this technological sphere, you need to be able to produce these. Uh, And I think that it also favors uh, human rights as well. You know, you mentioned it uh, pretty eloquently, but just to add on to the, the, the Uyghurs in China, up to three million are being held in concentration camps with legitimate reports by Amnesty International, the UN, uh, uh, Human Rights Watch of, you know, mass indoctrination, mass rape, organ harvesting, all sorts of atrocities. And so anything that we can do to put pressure on China from an economic standpoint to say, hey, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And by the way, here's a better solution. I'm I'm all for I mean, I'm in favor of that. There was a, another knock on effect to Donald Trump's description of COVID as the China virus or the Kung flu or any of these yeah. kind of racist tropes. And that was uh, Asian hate crime. Yeah. And and it, yeah. it I mean, it it spiked and continues to. Um, and this whole, you know, garbage about it coming out of a, the lab in Wuhan rather than a wet market. You know, there's new evidence on on that and how it you know happened naturally. And, you know, I personally connect it to climate change. You know, I've read a lot about how, you know, all of these things, even monkeypox. Now, there's so many things now that are potentially an effect to us destroying this planet. And it's almost like the, the planet is fighting back. Let's just talk about the, the hate crime for just a moment, because, you know, this is going to have a lasting effect, isn't it? You know, just kind of, you know, bringing semiconductors back home doesn't necessarily help the cause. I know it's a slightly different subject, but there is still this knock-on effect of this anti-China rhetoric. Well, again, remember, you know, uh, this is not new to the United States. Uh, the 
the Chinese massacre of 1871, where 500 white Los Angelinos uh, killed 18 Chinese Americans, and not a single person was brought to justice. This is still raw in the memory of many Chinese Americans. It should be in the memory of every American. And the consequence of the anti-Chinese massacre of 1871 was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which was re-upped in 1892, re-upped in 1902, and expanded to include Japanese and Koreans as well. And then that further expanded to uh, the uh, Immigration and Nationalization Act of 1917 and 1924 that banned all Asians, including South Asians like me. And that wasn't finally lifted until the Civil Rights Acts of 1965. And that credit, by the way, goes to black civil rights leaders who said that none of us are free until all of us are free and we need to provide just immigration access to our Asian sisters and brothers as well. And so 1965, Anthony, that's yesterday's newspaper, right? Both of my parents are older than that. I've got siblings who are close to that age. And so what we're seeing now with the anti-Chinese rhetoric, and, and I'm, I want to be very specific, I'm talking about the people of China, Chinese you know, citizens or civilians, is not new in the United States. It's taken on different transformations, uh, and more broadly, Asians in general, who can forget the, you know, the Japanese concentration camps where, you know, uh, Executive Order 9066 sent us 120,000 uh, Japanese, Amer uh, Japanese Americans to these camps. But, you know, what we're seeing now with the spikes in hate crimes, the anti-Asian uh, attack in Atlanta last year that, that left eight people dead, the, the fact that two-thirds of the victims of these uh, anti-Asian hate crimes are women, indicating just the cowardice of these pathetic individuals targeting Asian Americans. And the fact that when the former president would tweet, you know, Kung flu or the China virus, you would see a spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. This and is, it wasn't even to Chinese people. I mean, the, oh, the racists couldn't, they couldn't tell the difference. Right. <laughs> they couldn't right. see the difference between Chinese and Korean or Japanese. Yep. It was irrelevant to them, yeah. right? A Asia is apparently just one big blob without different, you know, the same <laughs> yeah. people who will get offended if you confuse, you know, German and French or Scandinavian or, or Danish <laughs> will have no idea the difference between Chinese and Japanese and Korean and so on. But, but I, I guess yeah. the point I want to emphasize is that this isn't new. The former president found a new way to exploit it with new technology. But, um, yeah. but, but I always get nervous when I hear people say, well, this is not the America I remember. What that tells me is that you haven't been paying attention. And, and, and maybe that apathy has been part of the problem. But if you are paying attention now, know that this is where a country has been. And it's not going to uh, improve by you know, osmosis or by spontaneous improvement. We need to be anti-racist anti-bigoted, and, and actively work together to counter this kind of hate. I've said a couple of times on this program that, you know, how has racism changed in America over, over the decades? And obviously, excluding the, the, period, the, the slavery period, the modern America, post-slavery, a lot of it was done in stealth, you know, in the in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you know, whether it be the KKK with rituals by night and, and the lynchings. But what we seem to have moved into now, and I, if we reference specifically like the lynching of Armored Arbery, who was, a, you know, a young black man running in broad daylight, who was who was executed by three uh, white men. I mean, and hunted down, yeah. and, you know, yep. effectively. Um, that is uh, that is not, in my mind, that is not racism improving in America. You know, like the the 
That is, to me, no... And his parents, you know, on, on the steps outside the courthouse, they referred to it as a lynching. Yeah. And, and you know, this is something that I, I fear is... I, I don't know the numbers, so I can't be specific, but I recognise just from media reports that to execute somebody in broad daylight and think you're going to get away with it because Donald Trump was the president, right? Yeah. It's a little bit. It's a little bit like, you know, any of these... Trump supporters who've committed these crimes even on the 6th of January, they thought they would get away with it because Trump would see them good, mm -hmm. because the, the, the white supremacist, the supreme leader, was, was going to kind of... And he's even said this in yeah. rallies stand recently, back and right? He's by. even said, yeah. I will pardon, if I'm president again, I will pardon all of these uh, people. Is, is racism improving, or is it getting worse, or is it changing in the U.S.? Well, I think the old saying goes that um, r racism um, is not Im improving. It's just being recorded now and it's just being documented yeah. in different ways. Look, I, I think I think one thing we need to be clear about is that slavery never actually ended in America. Yeah. Right. It, 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 yeah. it you know, you're, you're referring to this, the traditional quote unquote the slavery act right, effectively. Right. Yeah. But but the, the 13th Amendment. All it did was say slavery shall be banned except as a punishment for a crime. And so it just relegated it to the prison system. And so yeah. if you are a, a, a nation that has relegated people based on the color of their skin, particularly black skin, to being slaves, and now you're told that slavery is gone, but, but you can still enslave them if you accuse them of a crime and convict them. So you had these vagrancy laws come up and then all these formerly enslaved people who now had no money, no resources, no ability to get on their own because they had the 40 acres and a mule. They had, you know, this this mockery of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, that phrase is used, but people forget it was actually a way to yeah. mock them. Now yeah. they were basically became assets of the state who then rented them back out to those former enslavers. To have the exact same situation, they have you know mass incarceration because they're working in prison. You know, a lot a lot of for incarcerated people are, are do are doing manual labor in in prison. For so, slave and and we also know about you know it's been widely written about a thing called modern slavery, where people mm -hmm. in in the workplace are yeah. working for slave wages and you know are are underpaid and and you know th this hasn't gone away. No, you know it, it is just. You know, I'm answering my own question here, yeah. know, but it's like it, it has just evolved. It has changed. And do you think do you think there's ever a chance? I mean, even America within eight years of a black president, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Obama that he didn't do enough for black and brown people in America. Is that fair? I think that uh, you can make an argument both ways. I uh, I believe that true justice has to come from economic justice. Um, you have to provide people an economic base. And the data shows, the evidence shows that if you want to decrease crime, if you want to decrease violence, you provide people economic stability. Law enforcement does not decrease crime. Uh, I, all the evidence and studies show this. You know, Clinton, uh, President Clinton threw 100,000 new cops on the, uh, on the streets. And there's a great article from 2001 of a Chicago Tribune study that says that since President Clinton made this commitment in 1993, there's no actual evidence that crime rates decrease as a result of that. But what we know is crime rates decrease when people have a living wage, when people have food security, they have healthcare security, education security. And these are all things that I think President Obama made progress in 
with expanding the American, uh, the, the ACA, you know, known as Obamacare. But at the same time, you know, there wasn't really much done work done on the federal level on gun violence. And he admits to that. There was no change to the minimum wage. It's still an abysmal poverty wage of $7.25 an hour. There wasn't nearly enough done on climate justice. We know the devastating impacts of climate change and the multiplied impact that's on black and brown communities because of the NIMBY effect, the not in my backyard. So, uh, you you know, I'm not here to, to bash President Obama. I think he did a lot of good things. But when you look at the core of what I think President Biden should be doing right now, is focusing on making sure people have economic justice. If we can do that on a consistent level, we decrease crime, we decrease poverty, we increase national security. And, and that's where I think we're seeing a gap and it's allowing things like the Southern strategy to thrive, which was a, a Nixon era strategy that basically said, if you can convince the poorest white man that he's better off than black people, then he'll vote for you every single time. And it's been effective because you look at these red states and you look at how much poverty is afflicting these red states. It far outweighs anywhere else in the country. They are the most dependent on social, social welfare programs and on federal subsidy. But because they've been convinced that you're better than the Mexican, you're better than the Muslim, you're better than the black guy, they continue to vote against their own interests. And that's really what we got to overcome. It is a tragedy. I've always said for years that, you know, the wrong people or the right people are voting for the wrong party. You know, this is this is a problem in every country, isn't it? That the that the rhetoric of the right plays into the 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 fears of the poorest. But actually, there's nothing in their policies to to assist the poorest And, and the poorest, you know, no matter how white and angry they are they would benefit from voting for democrats and and you know that's not a it's not even a political statement you know it's it's not like a sales pitch it's it's fact and you know we we saw it uh, you know a couple of days ago with with the republicans voting against this bill for veterans yeah. you know the toxicity bill which uh, you know john stewart had a, a lot yep. to say about i mean and and Ted Cruz fist bumping his colleague in in the chamber because they'd managed to 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 block it. I mean, it's beggar's belief to me that that a party that claims to be for law and order and you know they'll vote for a war, but they won't vote to protect people once they come back from war. The people that have fought for the war and invariably the people who are fighting for America are well, these very same people that we're talking about who are then coming back to these small towns as veterans and are relying on the state to support them. And they are traumatized and they are uh, incapacitated. And and yet they will still vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense why people like Ted Cruz would be proud of that moment when you consider two things. One, the first question I have is, I'm glad he found his way to the Senate and didn't get stuck in Cancun this time. Um, although well, he was picking his kids up, yeah. you know, he had, he had, he had, he had um, a job to do. But, but two, uh, I used to think, you know, how do these Republicans sleep at night? How do they justify these kinds of votes? And then I realized they probably sleep on a large pile of money. And, and that's really what it comes down to that as long as you realize that who they are serving is not the American people, uh, it's not the veterans, uh, it's not infants in the womb or babies in the womb or infants after they're born. They are serving the defense contractor industry. 
they are serving the billionaire corporations who are giving them kickbacks and taking them on these sweet rides and giving them these multi-billion dollar consultant deals after they get out of office. Once you realize that, then it makes perfect sense of what they're doing. You realize why they push through Citizens United to allow unlimited money to flow in to office. You realize why they've stacked the Supreme Court with this right-wing nut jobbery to undermine basic human rights and basic civil uh, rights that we've made advancements on over the last 50 years. Because for them, it's not about forming a more perfect union or truly uplifting the marginalized. It's about how do we manipulate these people to ensure we can continue to stay in power and be in the sense of perpetual minority rule, which, which brings me all the way back to what I started the show with, that the solution really has to be that we wake up the apathetic masses and let these folks realize that it isn't hopeless. Your vote matters. And if it didn't matter, they wouldn't be trying so hard to prevent you from voting in the first place. We need to activate. We need to organize. And, you know, I'm an athlete growing up. And so the analogy I always like to use is that if you want to win at the state championship or the national championship or the Olympics, you don't win by showing up on the day of the competition and pretending you're going to win. You win in the summer before training in the hot summers, in the winter before training in the cold winters, putting in the hours and the miles. So when the day comes to deliver, you can deliver successfully. And, and same with voting. You don't win by simply showing up to vote on election day. You win by canvassing and activating and organizing every single day before the election day comes that when you go to the polling booths, it's not just you, it's you and the 500 people you know are coming with you to vote. I want to finish with a, a positive story out of the uh, Chicago Tribune this week um, that said that Muslims living in Illinois say they are feeling optimistic about their future after a report released on Thursday showed the state's Muslims are the most diverse and one of the fastest growing faith communities in the country, with more Muslims per capita now in Illinois than in any other state. I mean, this is... Uh, to you and I who believe in multiculturalism, this is a wonderful thing to celebrate. <laughs> there will be people reading this article and they'll be like, no, <laughs> you know, how, how do we how do we qualify this? I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing. Right. But, you know, the, the, as I say, you know, not for everybody. I mean, like I, I said this like last week as well, you know. I thought that everybody in America was thrilled that there was a black guy in the White House for eight years. And it turned out not so much. Yeah. A lot of people were really unhappy about that. Look, my, my family's been in, in Illinois since 1988. Um, my wife and I left for uh, about a decade for law school, but we're back and I'm an Illinois Muslim now again. And so to see the Muslim community grow over these years is great. Another fun fact is that the oldest mosque in America, oldest continuous mosque in America, the Al-Sadiq Mosque is on the south side of Chicago as well. So there's a rich, a deep history of Islam in Illinois. And, and what I would uh, share with those folks who are concerned about Muslims being in Illinois, growing and developing, are just the facts. The facts are that uh, Muslim Americans have a much lower crime rate than most any other demographic out there. Um, immigrant Muslims have a much lower crime rate than uh, most any other demographic out there. In fact, even broadly speaking, immigrants have a lower crime rate than U.S. citizens, even undocumented immigrants. Would you just say why? Because I, I think people don't quite understand the concept of Islam and, and that word peace and that translation. Just explain that for a moment. Well, I'll, I'll explain the, the spiritual element and the practical element. The spiritual element yeah. is very simple. The prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was very clear that loyalty to your country of residence is part of your faith. And serving your neighbor 
regardless of whether they're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or gay or straight or any other differentiating factor, serving your neighbor is your obligation. And so for us, it's a tenet of faith that we must provide that service and that sense of peace within our communities. But then the very practical aspect of it as well is if you are an immigrant Muslim, like my family and I are, you don't drop everything, leave your culture, your nationality, your ancestry behind to travel 10,000 miles to cause trouble. You're going because you want to build a better life. You want to build a better future for your family and for your children. And, and, and the life that my wife and I are able to provide for our children, I say openly and without hesitation, is not a life we could have provided in Pakistan. And so when I'm critical or when we are critical of the United States, it's, it's for the reason that James Baldwin said, that I love America more than any other country on earth. And it is exactly for this right, uh, for this reason, that I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually because I demand better. I demand that she lives up to her ideals. And so for those who saw that report of American Muslims increasing in America, I, you can remember three things. It means more doctors, more cab drivers, and better food. And you can't go wrong with those three. <laughs> Kasim Rashid, thank you. Appreciate you. Uh, and I wish you all the best with your um, ongoing campaign and with the sale of your books. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. I'm Anthony Davis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast. And also the Five Minute News daily podcast, which drops every morning so you can listen while you make your coffee and leave an iTunes review. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the Five Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.